And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It is June 6. June 6 is D-Day. This is the 79th anniversary of D-Day. And we're going to remember. Welcome, Peter Mansbridge here, and uh, Brian Stewart will be joining in a couple of moments as we talk about the importance of June 6, one of those days that will live forever. It's a part of history. It's a part of our history. June 6, 1944, D-Day, the invasion of Normandy, the beginning of the liberation of Western Europe from Nazi Germany. Canada was a part of that day and remains a part of that day in terms of our memories all these years later. Next year will be a big year in terms of remembering because it'll be the 80th anniversary. Uh, but we're going to get a jump on all those people who are planning the 80th by having our own little remembrance of the of the 79th. Brian was uh, over there in, um, in 1984, which was the 40th anniversary of uh, D-Day. We were both over there for 1994, which was a big deal. It was the 50th. And then we were at the 60th and the 70th just a, a couple of years ago. So we've got a lot of memories on those beaches in, in terms of the different moments, the different anniversaries, and the different remembrances. And we've seen a lot of people who were involved in those battles uh, come to those celebrations in some ways. You, you can call it that. Um, and, we've, and we've lost them. We've lost almost everybody who fought on that day, June 6, 44. Uh, time has marched on. There are still a few of the old fellows left, and I'm sure a few of them will make their way next year. I don't know, you know, they're going to be over 100 more than likely. Um, but there will be some there, uh, maybe their last time round. Um, just before I bring Brian in, a couple of things to remember about D-Day. We tend to think of it uh, because of movies and books and everything through the eyes of the British or the Americans. Well, <clears throat> there were three countries primarily involved in D-Day. The British, the Americans, and the Canadians. But there were also, you know, almost 10 other countries as well in, in smaller roles, minor roles compared with the big three. Uh, and we don't want to forget those because, you know, the Australians were there, the Belgians were there, the Czechs, the Dutch, the French, the Greek, New Zealanders, Norwegians, Rhodesians, the Poles were there. So there were, it was a multinational force that landed on those beaches in huge numbers, too. You know, this was the biggest land-sea invasion in history at that time. And it's important to remember just how big it was. There were somewhere between 150 and 160,000 Allied soldiers on the beaches of Normandy by the end of that day, June 6th. Just think of that, 156,000 is usually the figure that's often used. Um, 4,000 Allied troops were killed by German soldiers during that invasion. There were more than 300 Canadians who lost their lives that day. At the time, the D-Day invasion, as I said, was the largest naval, air, and land operation in history. And think of this. Within a few days, 
about 326,000 troops, more than 50,000 vehicles, and some 100,000 tons of equipment had landed just in a matter of days. It's remarkable what happened in such a short period of time. Now, I want to bring Brian in, and we're going we're gonna to go back through some of our memories of of what we'd witnessed over time and listening to the stories of, 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 of the mostly men um, uh, who were there on, on that day, on June 6, 44. But I want to start, Brian, because Brian's such a student of history, as we all know from this past year and listening to his various commentaries on the Ukraine situation. But one of the remarkable things about that day was that Somebody had to make the final decision. Okay, we're going to do this. It had been planning for months, if not years. The uh, the final move onto the uh, uh, breaking through the Atlantic Wall and landing in Western Europe. It had been planned for a long time. Multi-nation planning. But at the end of the day, somebody had to say, yes, we're going to do it. And that somebody was General Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, from the United States. It was the Supreme Allied Commander for D-Day. And we tend to forget or not even think about the enormous pressure that must have been placed upon this one particular individual. I mean, obviously he had other generals and, uh, you know, uh, various Air Force leaders, naval leaders, army leaders, and political leaders were a part of the discussions. But at the end of the day, he had to make the call. Talk about the pressure that Dwight Eisenhower was under, Brian. It, it's hard, Peter, to really uh, to sum it all up, to even imagine what it would be like. I remember once talking to an old British editor. Uh, I was asking him, you know, what was it like on, on the weeks leading up to D-Day? What was the mood like? And he said, we were an island of nervous wrecks. If every civilian was a, ner- a nervous wreck, what was the pressure like on the one, as you mentioned, the one officer, the supreme Allied commander for the liberation of Western Europe, that had to make that call when the weather was very bad? There was a very small opening in the weather that he could risk it. He had to say himself it was a gamble. He had to make the decision, and he said to an aide as he watched the first paratroopers heading off to parachute into Normandy, I hope to God I know what I'm doing. Imagine that, really. It's not just the landing. It was whether it going to be a success or not. Of course, that was obviously the giant gamble. Well, he called it a gamble, um, a gamble that had to be taken. He said, I don't like it, but it's the only thing we can do. We have to make a decision. I'm the one who makes the decision we're going to go. Um had D-Day failed, and I've never attended a D-Day anniversary without my palms getting still a little bit sweaty when I start to think of the odds. What if that? What if the great invasion of Normandy, the landings had failed that day? What it would have meant, not just to the war, but to civilization itself? Certainly the Western Allies could not have come up with another invasion for years to come. Uh, the mood at home may have been, never try that again. We just lost, who knows, 30,000, 50,000 men. You're not going to do that again. The war would have dragged on. 
Nazism would have taken ever more dark turns into the the, the hellish, the absolute hellish. We don't know how the war, the, the war would have gone, the Soviet Union and Germany. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think the Western allies would have used the atomic bomb to bring it to an end. I think they were really working on it for Germany uh, at first, and Germany fell out of the war, and they used it on Japan. But we would have had a nuclear weapon dropped in Central Europe to just try and end the war. But everything had to succeed that day. I mean, you couldn't face the thought of what would happen if it failed. And therefore, again, the, the, the decision made by this commander, General Dwight Eisenhower, um, is just mind-boggling. One, perhaps one of the great decisions made in the entire 20th century, if not in, in the last millennia, in terms of the impact it had on the world. I mean, civilization was restored to Europe with the invasion of Normandy and the recapture of Western um, Western Europe and eventually the end of the Cold War and an end of the Cold War. But we got out of that with civilization intact. We couldn't really say for sure that civilization would come out intact and D-Day fail that day. You know, um, when I try to imagine what it must have been like sitting around that table with all those other officers and leaders and being uh, and input from some of the leaders, like Churchill uh, and FDR, uh, were, were there any saying, no, it, it, this is just too much of a gamble? I, I think the, there, nobody was saying no. There was some, somebody saying no to the dropping of the airborne. Uh, the, the three divisions, the two American and one British, with some Canadians, including the British, uh, dropping in Normandy is altogether too risky. But he was, it was Lee Mallory, the air marshal. But he was overruled by the others who said, we simply have to have it, however grave a gamble this is, to parachute 18,000 parachuters in the dark of night under German anti-aircraft fire and fire all kinds into a, the, a landing in the pitch dark and fight like crazy to try and keep the Germans from getting to the beaches. Um, that, that was the fake thing. But there were a lot of people, I think, more than we know from history, really, probably, who were nervous as blazes that night and thought the worst might happen. One of them was Field Marshal Brook. He was the senior general of all in Britain. He was the the chief of the imperial general staff. He was Monty's boss. He was all the other generals' boss. And he wrote in his diary. So this was written hours before the D-Day. Just This is the actual words of a top commander hours before the troops went in. And he's writing... It is very hard to believe that in a few hours the cross-channel invasion starts. I am very uneasy about the whole operation. At the best, it will fall far short of expectations of the bulk of people. At the worst, it may well be the most ghastly disaster of the whole war. I wish to God it were safely over. And that's a nervous man. Yeah, That is somebody almost at his wit's end. Eisenhower at this time, we should remember from his own diaries and people who knew him, was living on coffee, scotch, and four packs of non-filtered cigarettes a day. I mean, he was just literally chain-smoking. The nerves were so bad. And he's saying on the night of the invasion, I hope to God I know what I'm doing. <laughs> 
um, that gives you some sense. I got another indication. Uh, well, actually, once I was looking at some old film archives of uh, D-Day, and they had some outtakes, you know, the, the film that was never used, but you see a clapboard clapping on the newsreel cameraman, and it says June the 6th, uh, 0500 hours, or 5 o'clock, in, sorry, 5 o'clock in the uh, afternoon. And it's at the headquarters of all the officers, and they're coming out. You have Ramsey, the, the admiral, and, and a couple of air marshals are coming out. And they look like kids being let out of school almost. The, the, the faces look unbelievably relaxed, like they're almost they're breathing for the first time, not just in days, but in months. The tension these people have been under for really 11 months solid and, and six months of very heavy preparation. I once talked to a Canadian officer, a senior general, who was in charge of the Canadian fire support on D-Day. That means to hammer at the German defenses and try to knock them out. And he had been put under what he claimed was close arrest for nine months. He had been part of the, the, the real planners of D-Day. At a time, remember, when they didn't really have computers, like now they're working on slide rules and stuff like that most of the time. Anyways, he went over, he was going over the night of the invasion with the troops, and he had all his plans worked out. And I said, what were you feeling? And he said, you know, at one stage, I walked to the back of the landing craft, and there was nobody at the back, at the, at the stern. Um, it was all by myself, and I felt an overwhelming temptation to just step off and disappear into the channel and be gone. I found I can't take this stress any longer, not knowing whether my calculations were maybe at one small flaw in the calculations could get a thousand men killed before noon. Uh, that's, I've, I've really felt suicidal and I have no doubt that there were many officers that night going over with their men who felt a, a strong urge to simply put an end to it all because they were living not only with this tension minute by minute, but they'd been living with it for months. And of course, uh, the men themselves were feeling extraordinary nerves. So it's, it's one of the things, civilization was saved by tremendous courage in uh, the face of fierce enemy fire and very skilled enemy fire, but it, it was restored with people holding their nerve. I think we always have to remember that. That's a big lesson of D-Day. It, it took mil military commanders, military privates, and civilians, everybody, to hold their nerve for an awful long time and pull this off. You <laughs> know, um, let me mention Churchill for a moment because, you know, the more there are kind of movies and, uh, you know, dramas made about uh, Churchill during the Second World War, there's a, one thing that's kind of crept into the storyline is the sense that he was really nervous about about what might happen. That you know he'd seen the worst in in the First World War. He'd been blamed for some of the worst in the First World War, mm -hmm. the deaths of uh, thousands of of young uh, British soldiers. Uh, that he was having these dreams of of water coming ashore uh, along the Normandy coast. You know blood soaked um and that he was nervous he, he never said don't do it but that he was really worried about what the consequences could be 
Indeed, that's true. And he, some two years before, he had argued against uh, any landing in Western uh, Europe is too dangerous. He's had nightmare dreams of blood flowing in the waves, uh, ashore waves. Uh, and he had really had to fight down his own terror of that failure that I've described. What would it mean? And what would, you know, they would make some of the, the butchery of the First World War look almost tame by comparison um, if it were really bad. And um, so his nerves were, were showing and, and blowing his top a lot. He, he got quite angry. And he had a particular reason to be angry because one of the strangest things about D-Day is right on the eve of the battle, Charles de Gaulle, leader of the Free French, chose to come in and start messing everything up, saying that he, you know, he, he would not go to France under the orders of Eisenhower. It'd have to be a separate French command. And Churchill was so so annoyed, he threatened at one stage to have him thrown in arms and shipped off to Algiers. He was so furious. So, I mean, part of that, I'm sure, was, was Churchill's nerves just exploding. Uh, and once again, this miraculous figure of General Eisenhower was able to calm everything down. Eisenhower was a superb organizer, but he was also an almost magical dealer of uh, people with strong differences. So there was, at the very top, normal jealousies break loose. There was de Gaulle making them, uh, everybody else angry. As somebody said at the time, you have to forgive de Gaulle. After all, his standard diet is the hand that fed him, <laughs> the human hand that fed him. Um, you know, uh, so there was that going on. The, the other thing about Eisenhower that one tends to forget, uh, because he's looked upon as this incredible um, military strategist as a result of D-Day, um, and yet he himself had never been to battle. At least he'd never faced the front. He'd never faced it in the First World War, and he hadn't faced it in the Second World War. He was, as you said, an organizer. Right. Indeed, and if he was so brilliant, organized, he was top of his class in the Leavenworth officer training. He was the head of the American char- planning for the Second World War in 1940-41. He was thought to be so bright, but he had never been in battle, and he was very conscious of this uh, all along. Uh, and Montgomery always rubbed it in whenever he got a chance because Montgomery was almost as evil-tempered as De Gaulle at times in laying slanders around. But um, he obviously had enormous courage, and I think nobody ever doubted, certainly after these events, his his courage. Um, Yeah, one of the things that I think history doesn't really, at least the movie versions, the popular culture version, show enough of the, the difficulty of of planning these operations and how much effort has to go into it. And, and, and this was at a time when, remember, the, the simple cell phone that we carry in our hands, mobile, had more computer power than all of Eisenhower and all of the Pentagon and all of the British military uh, computer power put together. So a lot of it did come down to people literally working with, you know, you know, rules on paper and and adding things up and subtracting them as it goes over my head. All of that had to be done with the complexity that today we can't really even imagine, I think. 
I mean, how do you get 7,000 vessels to cross the English Channel through minefields in some kind of order? I mean, it's hard enough to get one vessel across some days when the the, the weather's not so good. 7,000 vessels um, with something like 40 German U-boats were supposedly supposed to cut off any invasion. Um, all of that has to be coordinated down to the absolute minimum. And uh, just thousands and thousands of people went into uh, the, the planning of this. Yeah, so Of course, you know, the, the, one of the great thrills of covering uh, D-Day we both had a lot of, and that is be able to talk and actually walk along the beach with these guys that came ashore. And the way they took nothing for granted, they, they very well knew what their their officers had, had gone through getting them to this place. They knew what their buddies had gone through and they knew what they had had to withstand. And it was just sort of, um, it, it was a moment, you set it up well at the beginning because I once did a stand-up where I mentioned that I had never run across a vet who, who really said anything. The, the standard line tended to be, I would not do D-Day again for a million dollars but I would not have missed it for 10 million <laughs> because of the very fact you mentioned at the beginning, this went into history. 10,000 years from now, I have no doubt people will still be reading about D-Day the same way that people read about, you know, the ancient battles of Gallipoli and then uh, ancient Greece and Rome and the rest of it. They just became part of history because they altered history. And I think there was a great pride in the people who, who managed to come through it um, and did, did their duty. And I think they, they had that pride with them for the rest of their lives and as well they should have. And, and I'm glad they did. Um, we're going to take our uh, our middle of the show break here in a second, but I just wanted one last thing about Eisenhower. He'd asked, as any uh, good leader would ask, give me a sense of what might happen here. What what kind of casualties could we be facing? And I, if I recall correctly, the rule the rule of thumb in those days was, you know, you should expect ten percent. Casualties. I, I'm not talking about just wounded and dead, but 10% could be dead at the end of this day, and you could still claim that to be a victory. Well, as we said, they landed 156,000 troops on D-Day. The list of dead amounted to 4,000, which is a horrible number. It's a you know a, a, a terribly high number, but nowhere near what they were worried they could face on that day going in. So that's that's kind of one point. The other point is Eisenhower, once again, like any good leader, had to be prepared for defeat. Had to be prepared for his commanders on the ground to say, you can't we can't do this. We're gonna have to pull out. You know, it's the the, the opposition's just too fierce, too well organized, and they clearly, you know, they knew we were coming or something, but we we can't deal with it. So he had to be prepared for that, and he was prepared for it to the point where he he rode out. It's all on, you know, it's a part of the history books now, but he, he rode out what he would say if the landings were a failure. And as you've pointed out many times in the various shows, the last line of it is this was 
my decision and my decision alone to do this. So I was, you know, you know, hard to hard to imagine a modern day general writing a note like that and putting it in his pocket, and he would be thinking, "Here come the Senate inquiries. Right. Here, here, here! I'm going to be lashed in public for the rest of my life. Uh, there's no way I'm going to put my name down to something like this." And and I, you know, he just again, he was a remarkable moral character, and uh, he. he I, not only did he write it out, and it's an amazing note to 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 look at, um, but he signed it. The date July fifth, June fifth. No, he signed it. This is that he got the date wrong, July fifth, because he was so nervous and I, jittery. You can tell his handwriting. He was so nervous and jittery the time he wrote it that he put down July instead of June. And that's all marked by a lot of the uh, psychologists who've looked at the pressure of command as one sign of his distraction at the time. Wow. Between the four packs of cigarettes puffing away yeah, and the exactly. I mean, I mean, honest to God. Okay, we're going to take a, a quick break and then we're going to get back and talk specifically about the Canadian involvement on that day because it was significant and and sometimes we as Canadians don't recognize just how significant it was. Uh, So we'll get back uh, to that right after this. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of The Bridge for this uh, June 6th. It's the anniversary of D-Day, the 79th anniversary of D-Day. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. With me, Brian Stewart. Uh, The two of us have uh, covered a number of the anniversaries of D-Day on the scene in, uh, in France, along the Normandy coast, usually around the communities of uh, Crucelle sur mer and Saint-Aubin-sur-Mer, where the Canadians landed. Um, so let's talk about the Canadians for a moment. Uh, for those of you who've been there and have gone to the, the little cemetery at Benny-sur-Mer, where there's a couple of thousand Canadians buried, um, who were part of the Normandy campaign, not just the day of, but beyond. And it's a very... Um, you know, it's an obviously it's a cemetery, so it's an emotional place uh, to be there. But it 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 feels so much like Canada. They, it's surrounded by maple trees. Uh, France, you know, has given the land to Canada, so in, in you know technically it's a part of Canada. Uh, but there, those are all you know young Canadian uh, lads. No, they're, they're not all young, but most of them are young in their late teens, or early twenties. Uh, and you, you know, uh, for those who died on June six, and the dates right there on the, uh, on the on the headstones, you, you have this sense that you know they didn't know, they didn't know what happened, right? They didn't know whether they'd succeeded in that in their invasion. They rushed ashore. Sometimes, in some cases, were cut down before they got their feet out of the water. Um, you know, running next to their their buddies who they'd been in training and being told repeatedly, don't stop, don't stop for anything, don't stop for your buddy. When the shooting starts, just get as far inland as you can. And you've got to start knocking out those German positions. 
and how hard that may, must have been. A lot of these young guys, you know, there was their best friend they were running beside. Anyway, um, Brian, talk to me about uh, the Canadian, you know, there were, there were five beaches. Gold and Sword were the two British beaches. Juneau was the Canadian beach. And um, Utah and Omaha were the American beaches. The one perhaps most famous is Omaha because it was a bloodbath. Um, it was the fiercest opposition came along Omaha Beach. And if you've walked that stretch, as I have and I'm sure you have, Brian, it can be a lonely stretch of beach um, as you walk along there. Uh, but talk to me about the uh, about the Canadians and the significance um, that we were one of the main three partners on that invasion and just how we did on that day. Yeah, imagine the responsibility on Canada's shoulders that day. We were right smack in the middle of the biggest invasion, naval invasion in history upon which the war depended. We had, uh, you know, two years earlier had a disaster at Dieppe. Uh, I mean, you know, what, what if the Canadian had been the sole beach not to succeed, you know? I mean, there was enormous national importance for Canada as well, well understood. And it was given an enormous responsibility and, and really it conducted it brilliantly well given all that it had to face. Um, I didn't realize until I once measured it one day that, I mean, the beach front that the Canadians landed on was eight kilometers wide. It's, you know, it's not a small beach you're landing on like you might see in a movie. This is a very jumbled area of, of small houses on the beach front and, and cluttered rock formations, and then another beach and another beach, and all of that has to be coordinated <laughs> under ferocious fire from the uh, very well-trained German troops, very well-armed troops. German troops as well, um, just going up against that and then having to break through this remarkably cluttered, if you see pictures of it up front, break through and then start moving inland uh, where you're supposed to get is, you know, 12 miles or so inland. Uh, the Canadians, as we well know, but penetrated the furthest that day. Well, it can sound pretty easy like we they got, uh, what, 11 miles or so inland. We'd start walking that and see what they had to fight through or go in a very small moving car, just a few miles an hour, and see the number of fields and hedges and and crops of, of, of buildings and trees where enemies can be lurking. And you wonder how anyone could get. Uh, that far inland. Of course, they had massive uh, support from the air, including many Canadian squadrons were going in, uh, ground support, and they had area uh, naval support as well firing. So they were very well backed up with fire support. But what made it very difficult for all of the invading uh, troops, and certainly the Canadian ones, was the, the Germans had been particularly well trained at concealed firing and the germans had a particular combat skill that uh, nobody ever matched i think it was it was pretty well agreed they were the best uh, professional troops or the best troops let's call it in the second world war certainly were the best officers they're very well trained that if you have to retreat any immediately counterattack 
So every time the Canadians would take a position, they thought they had somewhat secured a position. The next thing they knew, they were facing a pretty skilled German counterattack right on that spot. Uh, by these very well-trained troops. Many of them had fought in the Eastern Front uh, for years. Their officers were extremely well well trained. So that made it all very difficult as well. And uh, basically, I think the, the Canadian performance was absolutely as good as anybody on D-Day and, and really was uh, outstanding in, in the depth it got inland and really could mark the day down as a, a very significant success, not just to the day, but for the country, for the country's effort in the Second World War. That would be probably our most outstanding feat. And there were regiments, um, you know, from across Canada, from the prairies, from uh, Atlantic yeah. Canada, from central Canada, <clears throat> both Ontario and Back. Quebec. I mean, they were, they were, it was a very representative um Canadian group, and you're quite correct in in mentioning, um, you know, it, it wasn't like one beach. It was named one beach, right? Uh, but as you said, it was what eight or ten uh, kilometers wide. But that encompassed like three different, at least three different communities, right? right. They had to take each one of these towns uh, from uh, uh, from German hands, uh, and the Germans. It, it, I mean, they were kind of they were caught off guard, right? They didn't expect it was a, the 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 landing was going to take place in Normandy. They didn't, you know, they had they had good troops in some places. They certainly had good troops on the Omaha Beach, but uh, in other cases they weren't so good. But they moved in uh, new troops fairly quickly within a couple of days, and uh, and the fight became hellish. I mean, the oh, landing oh. Was, landing was one thing, but then moving forward inland took forever, much longer than they thought it was going to take. For weeks, and there was brutally hot weather, incredibly uncomfortable. And uh, some I, some veterans remember the heat is almost as bad as the battle at times, fear. And and, uh, and uh, it was just t- a terrible fight. And beyond that, of course, lay the liberation of northern France and then the liberation of Holland. They were still 11 months away from uh, the end of the war. So, I mean, talk about having to climb Mount Everest three times in a row or something. But the exhaustion factor that this would put on people who never got a decent night's sleep, uh, or, you know, were constantly under stress and nerves and the rest of it, uh, it's quite remarkable that they could hold all that together as well as they did. Um, and uh, it's it just, uh, yeah, this was something to remember, D-Day was the one day but it was the the day they kicked the door open for the liberation of all of Europe, because the ones that came in on the second wave or the third wave were by no means facing an easy task whatsoever. They were coming in uh, facing uh, troops, uh, German troops already reorganizing, getting some reinforcements uh, uh, from the rear, uh, digging into better positions. So the fight in many ways just get, as you well said, gets harder and harder and longer and longer. And the casualties, I forget the figure now, but over the first six days uh, were really quite horrifying, um, the casualty figures. Um, One thing that I think one of the what ifs of history, uh, historians are giving more um, thought now to asking the question, what if this had happened? What if that had happened? We were blessed on D-Day by, first of all, the secrecy 
which was which the Allies managed to retain right up until D-Day, which would be almost impossible to do today. In fact, it would be impossible today, so we'll never see the likes of that again. But also the mistakes the Germans made at high command. Um, they had a huge fight between their two generals. They, I mean, a theoretical fight. They liked each other personally. Rommel, who was the commander of all the beach defenses, and von Rundstedt, who was the commander-in-chief of the Western forces, whether they should meet the invading army wherever it came, right on the beaches, which Rommel wanted to do, or fall back and meet it inland, as von Rundstedt wanted to do. And Rommel was overruled. He argued all along, look, we're, we're, if we let them get through the D-Day and get inland, we're done for because the Air Force above, their Air Force above will completely dominate us. We have to defeat them on the beaches. Had Rommel won that argument, Canadians would have gone ashore, Americans and Brits would have gone ashore, running into three, four, five times as much enemy resistance as we actually did. So thank heavens for that, uh, that falling out between the German generals as well. You know, Rommel, uh, of course, is an interesting character, character from his, you know, heroics in North Africa. But that summer, the summer of 1944, was uh, not a good one for Rommel, obviously. Uh, on, on June 6th, he wasn't there at his station as the head of the uh, German forces along the Atlantic Wall. He was back in Germany celebrating either his or his wife's birthday. His wife's birthday. And, and then he had to, to, to rush to the front. But then a month later, in the July 20th plot against Hitler, uh, Hitler was convinced that Rommel was a part of it. Um, and eventually, even though Rommel was this national hero, um, they they convinced Rommel that he should, uh, that he should take his own life, uh, which he did. Uh, rather than go through a trial and humiliation for his family and everything else, um, and then and then Hitler had this huge, huge funeral service for him in right. uh, the fall of '44. And as you know, um, four days before the plot, he was injured. He was shot up in his staff officer's car on the way to a meeting. So he's actually injured the day of the plot, and he was in hospital under treatment uh, when they tried to kill Hitler. And the person who spotted him driving along the road or being driven along the road was none other than a very famous Canadian, a later general but Air Force pilot, Romer. Richard Romer, absolutely. Richard Romer. Who was up there firing us on reconnaissance with a Spitfire? He looks down and he sees this what looked like a single staff car running along, and he he gives the message into a Polish pilot who's also up in that part of the sky as well, officer staff car in sight uh, to advise you shoot it up, and the Polish pilot did shoot it up, and that was Rommel. Uh, so how history may have been changed had uh, Richard Romer not been flying over. Right. General Romer was uh, is an amazing uh, character, and he, and he never lets you forget that moment. Uh, you know, you're in conversation, which I've done many times with him. Um, and he, you know, one one time he knew I was going over there for something, and he he gave me all these maps. He said, "This is where I flew. This is where I went. This is where I shot." You know, I arranged the shooting of the at uh, Romer's car. I mean, it's it's quite something. Quite the guy. Um, okay, we're, we're out of time, but I want to leave you with this uh, opportunity to, to say something about 
you know, I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, it was mainly men, and it, it was mainly men, obviously, who were uh, landing in the beaches in those days. It was all men. But there were women involved in, in D-Day as well, and they, you know, whether they were in the tracking stations or uh, the various aerodromes and, and what have you. Um, but the, those men who landed on the beaches, I, 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 you know, I, I remember standing with your old colleague, Tom Brokaw from NBC, in the cemetery at um, uh, Omaha Beach which is it takes your breath away because it's just row after row after row after row after row after row of crosses of just it never stops yeah. um and you know i i i asked him you know an unfair question i guess but i i, I we were standing under the trees at the side of the cemetery we were looking out at that and i said when you look out there you know tom what do you what do you think about and you know he he broke down and there's the guy who wrote the, you know, the greatest generation, associated in so many ways with telling the stories of the, of the Second World War. Uh, but his point was, you know, these guys came from everywhere. They were, you know, they were f- farmers' kids. They were, you know, from you know small towns and big cities. They, you know, some had jobs, some didn't have jobs, but they all felt this was the right thing to do, and they they came to fight for their country. Um, and they had extraordinary bravery, and it was a time when nobody questioned their desire to do what they did. You know, they were all proud of them. They were proud of them in their towns. They, you know, had had marches and ceremonies and parades for them when they when they came back. Um, but when you you know, you and I met some of these guys in their in their later years. But from what you know about them at, at the time. When you think about them, what do you think about? Well, I think much the same as you've just said. They were just a remarkable cross-section of uh, usually young men. In the Canadian sense, I always have this one feeling that uh, goes through me, that every single one of those who came ashore on D-Day and those who died and those who were wounded, some seriously for life, every single one of them could have been at home. They were volunteers. To a man at that time, these are people who went in and signed on the line and joined uh, to go across the ocean to fight the uh, foreign enemy that was imperiling civilization, they were convinced. And I think today we can still be convinced that's right. But they were all volunteers. They could have been sitting back home in front of a barbecue, fishing in a lake, doing something else, and here they were landing at D-Day. I mean, wow. Wow is right. Listen, thanks for the uh, the reminiscing. And, uh, you know, I don't know where we'll be a year from now on the 80th, but I know uh, wherever we are, we'll be thinking about uh, those guys and uh, and a day that, uh, uh, that changed history. Um, Brian, as usual, thanks so much for this. And well, we'll be back to your normal beat on Ukraine a week from now, but this was well worth taking the moment to think about all that. So thanks. Okay. My pleasure. All right. Brian Stewart with us, um, as he is usually on Tuesdays, but a very different topic today. And I appreciate him being there. That's going to wrap it up for this special edition. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Um, We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. (laughs) 